Well, again, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are here with us at Christ Community Church, the Olathe campus. I'm Nathan, the campus pastor here, uh, and I'm so glad that we uh, worship a God together who takes broken things, broken people, uh, and makes them beautiful through His Son, Jesus. Well, as we continue to, to celebrate that and to learn in that and to study His Word, why don't we pray together as we prepare to look at what the Bible has to say for us this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we... Um, are so thankful uh, that you are a God who makes broken things, um, broken people, beautiful through your son, Jesus. That, that even though we don't deserve it, even though so often we run from it and try to do whatever we can to resist you, God, that you continue to pursue us. God, I pray that in this moment this morning that you would speak to us through your word, through each other, through the music, that we would see you more clearly and know more what it means to to live as you've created us to live. We pray these things for the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, I know newspapers tend to be a bit outdated these days, um, but I did pick one up this morning on on the way here. Uh, I, I, used to, I used to love a good newspaper, you know, what's going on in the city, the nation, the world, all of that. Um, so just even looking at it this morning, okay, so the, the big news story today, right, you probably, can you see that? Not guilty, if you've been following the, the Zimmerman trial, all of that, no matter what you think about that, uh, it's messy to say the least, isn't it? Um, also here on the front page, more people have drowned in Missouri and Kansas than last year already. It's kind of interesting, I guess. Um, inside, a uh, Kansas City shooting victim dies in the streets. I think that's maybe about 60 so far in Kansas City, Missouri this year. A um, little bit of world news. Chinese typhoon. Uh, bombings at mosques. All kinds of things. It's kind of a depressing waste of $2, isn't it? Think about it. I mean, is the world supposed to be like this? I mean, really, and that's just, that's just today's paper. I mean, any of us could add a thousand things to that list, couldn't we? Planes crashing, tornadoes destroying, children starving, jobs disappearing, cancer ravaging, people hating, on and on and on. Is it, is it really supposed to be like this? And I don't care if you grew up a Buddhist monk or a raging atheist or a good little Christian. We all know the answer to that question, don't we? Of course it's not supposed to be like this. Why why else would we we weep? Why else would we cry out? Why Why else would we complain or feel so deeply in these moments? We humans are messed up and so is our world and we know it. So what do we learn from the continual onslaught of brokenness in our world? You kidding? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why this junk happens. I mean, not not with any specifics. I don't know why your marriage is struggling. I don't. I don't know why disease chose your family. I. I don't know why. Not any specifics. And yet, one thing I do know, as I survey the the landscape of our agony, is that sin is that bad. Sin is that bad. 
Now, wait a second, Nathan. Are you saying that I got sick because of my sin or, or that that plane crashed because those passengers were just a little more sinful than others or that, that God is sort of, sort of like this? I, I love Farside, right? Classic God, right? At his computer, about to hit the smite button, just, just waiting for one of us to mess up. Is that what I'm saying? No, of course not. And yet at the same time, with every tragedy, every disappointment, every dark thing that happens in your life and in our world, it ought to remind us, sin is that bad. Because none of it would exist if we hadn't chose to rebel against God in the garden. None of it. I mean, no wars, no terrorism, no earthquakes, no families imploding, no shame deep within, none of it. Thanks a lot, sin. Oh, but come on, me? It's not that bad, is it? Well, tell that to Jeremiah. I mean, you think things are tough for us. Back in Jeremiah's day, He wrote out this entire song of lament. It's called Lamentations, of of weeping, crying out, angry and afraid before his God. He is outraged in the midst of all the pain around him. If you have a Bible with you, turn there if you can find it. It's somewhere in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, a little tiny book in the Old Testament. You might just go to the table of contents. But as we understand this little tiny book of weeping, we see very clearly that sin is that bad, but God is that good. Sin is that bad, but God is that good. And so as we look at this, you know, incredibly fun, lighthearted little book, not true. In fact, the Bible doesn't really get much more depressing than this. But as we look at Jeremiah's song, we're going to ask three questions. How bad is sin? How good is God, and how do we hope? First, how bad is sin? Now, now Lamentations, just even in its own right, is kind of a fascinating little piece of literature. I don't know if you've spent much time here or not. Many of us, if you're reading the Bible with us this year, chapter day, we're reading all of Lamentations this week. It's only five chapters. What's what's interesting, just even sort of from a literary standpoint, is that the first four chapters of Lamentations are all acrostics, okay? That that means basically that chapter 1, verse 1 begins with Aleph, or A, and chapter 1, verse 2 begins with Beit, or B, on and on and on throughout the entire, you know, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, okay? That's sort of the poetic structure there, and chapters 1, 2, and 4 all follow that pattern. You can't see it in the English, right? Um, doesn't work that way. Now, chapter three, though, which is where we're going to focus this morning, is a little bit different because it grows in intensity in this middle portion of the book. It's still an acrostic, but instead of 22 verses, it has 66. And so the first words of verses one, two, and three all begin with Aleph or A, and four, five, and six with Beit or B, and on and on and on, 66 verses. And so chapter 3 is clearly the high point of this song. Smack dab in the middle of these verses of weeping. Why is it an acrostic? 
you know, just Jeremiah was in the mood, right? Just started writing out. I mean, it, it was a common literary, just as we occasionally do it today. It was a common poetic uh, tool that they would use. It, it's elsewhere in, in Scripture that we can see a very similar acrostic thing. But, but why here? Why in the midst of this pain did he use an acrostic? Many would say simply to artistically symbolize the totality of Judah's grief. They aren't just, you know, harmed a little bit, dealing with a little bit of sadness. They are utterly overwhelmed. Everything bad from A to Z has taken over. And they are in absolute despair. So let's begin reading chapter 3, verse 1. It's Jeremiah who's speaking here, and the third person that he keeps talking about, the the third person pronoun, he, is God. Okay, so he's not at this point talking to God, he's talking about him. Chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples. The object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness He has sated me with wormwood, which is a a bitter plant. He's made my teeth grind on gravel. I mean, he's eating dirt. And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. And then he turns to God and cries out, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Yikes. What's going on there? I mean, why would would Jeremiah accuse God of inflicting so much pain? I mean, what's, what's going on in Jeremiah's world? Well, Tim talked a little bit about it last week, right? As we looked at Jeremiah 29, that everything for Israel is in absolute flux. So, so what would be the newspaper headlines in Jeremiah's day? But what would it say back in, in 586 BC? I think, for example, a few would say, Babylon destroys Jerusalem, entire families slaughtered in the streets. The temple reduced to rubble, priests and elders massacred. Women and children raped and murdered. Survivors, now slaves, forced out of their homes. War-torn starvation. Mothers forced to kill youngest to feed families. And if you think I made that one up, read Lamentations. It's all in there. 
I mean, you thought our headlines were ugly. And people say, oh my goodness, could our world get any worse? You know, our country's so messed up, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, it could get worse quite a bit. But just imagine this, this level of tragedy that they're experiencing. I mean, the closest thing in, in my own experience that I can, I can think of this, this corporate tragedy of crying out together, something like what happened on 9-11, right? And many of us have probably very clear memories of that day and how it unfolded. I mean, for me, I remember we were in Chicago, downtown. That's where Kelly and I met. We met in college there. I remember going to my first class and, you know, hearing rumors, playing in New York, what? And then they, they canceled the rest of classes, and we, we gathered in the chapel to watch the news, to see what was happening. And that was still early enough in the day when they were showing people jump to their deaths rather than burn alive in the towers. And even just being in Chicago, I remember looking out the window and seeing, I mean, truly a sea of businessmen and women carrying their computers headed north, fleeing the skyscrapers. I remember watching the news, sitting in my chair, weeping and crying out to God. I mean, even just to think about those memories again, it makes me sick, doesn't it? It doesn't even compare to what Jeremiah witnessed. His entire people, all of them, in the midst of this incredible suffering. Why were they suffering so horribly? Sin. They had grown to hate God, to reject him. They had committed cosmic treason against him, and so God allowed the wicked Babylonians from the north to sweep in and wreak havoc on their world. This is God's judgment. And God would rather destroy us than let us continue on in our shame. Sin is that bad. Now, listen for a second here. Because God makes it clear in Lamentations that this is his judgment. Otherwise... I mean, unless God tells us here, we, we don't know, right? And, and if you read the book of Job, it's very clear. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and we have no idea why they do. Job never found out why he suffered like he did. Do not assume when something bad happens to you or somebody else or in our world, that God is just trying to sort of even the scores. I mean, that is, a, that is a trivial understanding of who God is and what suffering is. And yet, with every murder, every disease and deformity, every earthquake, every untimely death, it ought to remind us sin is that bad because none of it would exist if we hadn't rebelled against God. And so the next time you hear that horrible news story or, or tragic moment of a dear friend or encounter your own pain, remind yourself, sin is even uglier because sin is what started this mess. It's what unleashed the chaos and the pain around us. My sin is that bad. Come on. Not me. So I've rationalized thousands of times. I mean, who cares if I'm a little bit selfish? Or who cares if I tend to love 
success or leisure or money or whatever, just a little bit too much. I mean, is it really, is it really that big of a deal? And, and besides, I mean, talking about sin unleashing this mess, and that was Adam and Eve's deal, right? That was that their sin was, was that ugly. They're the ones who unleash this, this chaos and pain around, not, not us. Think about that for a moment. And what did Adam and Eve do, really? They had a bite of forbidden fruit. That's like a misdemeanor at worst. I hurt the people I love. I can be angry and proud and absolutely self-centered. I think their sin was bad. Are you kidding? I mean, have you looked at the things that we do? I mean, Adam and Eve, yeah, they may have been there first. The stuff we do is just as bad, if not worse. And if you had been there, it's probably a pretty good chance you would have done the same. And besides, what Adam and Eve did wasn't, wasn't merely eat the fruit. I mean, that, that's what we focus on. But what they, they, what they did was decide that as God's created beings, that they didn't need him anymore. That they could make their own decisions. That they could carve out their, their own way, their own way to live. They didn't need to trust him to make the decisions. They were going to call the shots. And name one sin of yours or mine that's any different than that. You can't do it. That's what started it all. Yeah, but is it really that bad? We deserve death now. Seems extreme. God is our maker. And he is perfect and holy without limit. And we are sinful and selfish to no end. And I spit in the face of God a dozen times a day. And how could I even expect to live in the same universe with a God like that? But I'm not, I'm not hurting anyone. We like to think that, don't we? Especially with our favorite sins. I'm not hurting anybody. Such a lie. Such a lie. Every sin affects everyone else. Just, just like we see with Israel, right? There are good people and there are bad people. They're in Israel and they are all experiencing the sheer terror of the Babylonians. Every time you sin, you hurt the people around you. There are no victimless crimes. And some of you right now think I'm crazy. Right? Because you've got your list of little favorites and they're just sort of harmless and easy and, and hidden and, and nobody noticed. And it's not, it's not that big of a deal. But think about that. But think about the implications that sin can have in, in people's lives. I mean, just for example, what if, I, what if I had an affair or embezzled from the church? That would have an effect on people, right? Yeah, but Nathan, that's a big sin. We're not talking, just little ones. Okay, well, fine. Not the big ones. What if, what if I just slowly, subtly, quietly allowed my ego to get the best of me? Nobody would notice, at least not for a while, right? I mean, it'd be hidden, and, and I mean, it just, I wouldn't even notice for a while. It'd be so, so simple, so easy, but over time, I end up making this place a monument to my own ego. Would that have any effects on anybody? Yeah, but Nathan, you're a pastor. Give me a break. Are we really that different? I mean, do you have nobody who 
counts on you, who respects you, who looks up to you, nobody who's connected to you or or dependent on you, nobody who would be affected by the person that you're becoming. Because that's the deal with every choice. We are becoming someone. We're never just sort of staying the same. We're always becoming someone. With every wrong click on the internet, for example, it's a good sort of harmless sin we tend to think, isn't it? But with every click, you're becoming a person who goes to that site to feel. You're becoming a person who objectifies women who will treat eventually your wife and all women as if they exist simply to benefit, and you are subtly teaching your children to do the same. With every click, you become a person who takes rather than gives, who settles for cheap imitation rather than intimacy, who chooses self over God. You are slowly, subtly over time becoming a person who actually chooses death over life. And every sin is the same. Every one of them, even my favorites. Victimless? Tell that to Jeremiah. Sin is that bad. My sin is that bad. But thank God we're not done yet. Sin is that bad, but God is that good. So how good is God? It's funny, like, they just, everybody did like a collective sigh of relief just a second ago. It's like, it's like palpable. Like, okay, all right, all right. How good is God? Greater than all our sin, I assure you. Jeremiah weeps, he cries out, he's angry, afraid, he's a hair's breadth away from utter despair. And Jeremiah, I mean, he knows that this is God's judgment, that they, they have led themselves to this place. He knows that. But look at how he continues. Let's pick up again in verse 19. And now he's speaking to God. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall. Again, wormwood is a really bitter plant, and gall also is this idea of bitterness. Remember my bitterness, he's saying. Verse 20. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And what's he saying there? I mean, essentially this, this idea, he's calling himself to remember. He's, he's forcing himself to remember. Because sometimes it's pretty hard, right? Especially when things are in their darkest places. He says, no, this is what I'm going to choose to remember. God's love his steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which carries with it this idea of covenant, of commitment. This is God's promising love for his people. It never ends. His, his commitment to them. Therefore, God's people, they're, they're destroyed, but they are not consumed is, is the idea there. It, it might feel in your circumstance that God has abandoned you. Some of us feel that way sometimes, don't we? But because of God's promising love, the one thing we know that we're not feeling is God's abandonment. You might feel a lot of things in those moments. But God's steadfast love declares it impossible 
that he would ever abandon you. God is that good. And in verse 22, it says, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. His mercies, that's the Hebrew word, rachamim, which is kind of this idea of tenderness and and compassionate. Um, It's the kind of love that um, holds you when you're weeping. It's the kind of love that, that promises to wipe the tears away from your eyes. In fact, etymologically, this word rachamim has connections back to the kind of love a mother would have for her child. And Jeremiah says these tender mercies, they, they never cease. I, mean, I kind of think of it as, as you know, when your child awakens in the middle of the night with, with a nightmare. You know, and, and you run in there and they just look into your eyes clinging to, to some sign that all is not lost. And that sense of almost instant reassurance they feel when they see a, a loving mother or father, that's, that's Rachamim, that's this tenderness. And it's endless, he says. God is like the mother who never stops running into the room for comfort, or like the, the father who, who holds his child and, and reassuringly says over and over again, who's got you? This tenderness. And it says brand new every morning. It's actually, I think, my favorite part of this whole passage. Fresh mercies daily. I can't, I can't tell you how many times in, in my circumstance, my, my life, I've you know, gone to bed, and like many of you, just kind of frustrated, right? You look at the events of the day, and you're, just, you're worn out. Your mind is still racing. And in those moments, you know, when, you, when you feel as if you, you can't possibly get up and do it again, right? I mean, you felt that, right? But in those, in those moments, I have I've clung on to this promise. And I've, I mean, prayed back to God. God, you, you promise, Right? You promise new mercies tomorrow, don't you? Because today's mercies, let's be honest, they're, they're just about spent. I need new ones tomorrow. And I cling to that promise knowing that that is what, what's promised here. When you go to bed tonight, when you get up tomorrow or you, you sit in front of your to-do list or whatever it is you tend to fear, cling to this. Better than fresh brewed coffee. More satisfying than fresh baked bread. God's tender mercies, fresh and new every morning. And that really is the best part of waking up. God is that good. And then he kind of wraps it up there. He says, great is your faithfulness. If you've been a part of church for any length of time, that's probably a fairly common phrase or you've, you've heard that before. What is it? What does it really mean? I think ultimately what what Jeremiah is saying there is, God, your ability to be trusted, it's the idea of faithfulness, your ability to to be trusted knows no end. And I mean, it's easy to say that, right, when you get good results from the doctor, you see your child making good choices, but for Jeremiah, all the fury of hell has been unleashed in his life. And still he says, Great is your faithfulness. Still, God, I trust you, he says. And if there's one thing, I mean, honestly, that I tend to pray for myself and for my family and for you, for many of you by name, if there's one thing over and over again, almost every single time I pray, it's that no matter what, 
no matter how hard it may seem, no matter how much it may feel as if God has left us, or no matter what you might be going through or me, that we would continue to trust him. Over and over and over again, that's what I pray. God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. And here in the midst of this, Jeremiah continues to say, great is your faithfulness. So how good is God? No, look at, look at the promises. Yes, our sin is that bad, you'd better believe it, but God is that good. And if that's all true, I mean, this is what we learned from this little tiny song tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. How do we hope? How how do we live in in the midst of of all of the mess, trying to to cling to hope and yet faltering along the way? Well, let let me mention three ways. First, we need to weep over broken things. I mean, you really can't miss this in a book like Lamentations. It's okay to cry out to God, to tell him how you really feel. In fact, this style of writing lament is found all over the place in Scripture. I mean, many of the Psalms are are laments. This is very common. God can handle it. And and lament, lament isn't grumbling. I mean, grumbling is, is whining to other people about how unfair you think God has been. But lament brings God into the problem. You're speaking to him about the situation, and lament is a path that leads to hope. And I find this so interesting about Lamentations. God never speaks in this book. He's utterly silent to all of Jeremiah's cries here in this moment. And yet, even in his pain, there's something about the process of lament that brings Jeremiah to a place of trust. And and as Christians... We should never be Pollyanna or blindly optimistic about the troubles around us. I mean, we should never callously slap cheery Bible verses on people's pain like band-aids on gunshot wounds. It's not us. Because we, we know the story of pain. We know how complicated it is because of sin. We know that it doesn't belong here and we know that he is yet to make it right. We should, we should never be sort of blind in our optimism. We know what's happening, at least broadly. And you and your circumstances, you might know specifically, you might not know specifically why it is you're suffering. It might be entirely unfair. I mean, little more than the the seeming randomness of living in a fallen world. But cry out to God. And maybe write something out like Jeremiah did. Allow your longings to lead you to hope. Second, if you want to live with hope, don't ignore God's warnings. I mean, there is suffering that, that seems absolutely random to us, right? But there is also suffering that comes from the inevitable consequences of our rebellion. Don't ignore God's warnings. I mean, mean, so much of the pain that the Israelites there are experiencing comes down to simply the fact that they have rejected God. They, They were convinced that they knew the best way to live. They were wrong. God warned them graciously over and over and over again. God gives us commands in Scripture over and over again. He commands us not 
not to hinder our joy. I mean, so often we think God is just trying to put us in a straitjacket to prevent us, but, but truly his commands lead us to the place of, of greatest joy, that he wants to protect our joy, to foster our joy, to give us most satisfying joy. If you ignore God's warnings and you continue wallowing in your sin like a pig in slop, you will destroy yourself and the people around you. Sin is that bad. Don't be naive. Now is the time to repent, to turn away from sin and turn to our God. And finally, to cling to hope, never stop waiting. I mean, so much of life is about waiting, isn't it? And even just think about this. God had told Jeremiah that the people of Israel would be stuck in Babylon for 70 years, which came true, actually. I mean, he had predicted that. Which, you know, in my mind, at first, it's like, well, it's not, it's not that bad, right? It's not that long in the, in the grand scheme of things. Except for the fact that anyone who actually went through all of this would have died waiting for God to come through, waiting for what they longed for. And yet, even so, Jeremiah writes, as we can continue in verse 24, he says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We wait. We wait together. We, we wait seeking him. We, we wait seeking the good of this fallen place. We wait clinging to the promises that he will make it right. We wait remembering all that he has done in the past. But we wait. One of my favorite Mumford and Sons songs, and I don't know what these guys believe. I know the main guy grew up a pastor's kid. He's kind of rejected his faith. But one song in particular, the, the chorus, I just, I love this. Every time it comes on, it says, hold on to what you believe in the light when the darkness has robbed you of all your sight. Hold on to what you believe in the light when the darkness has robbed you of all your sight. While we wait, while we wait for God to make right this world and this heart, while you continue waiting for whatever it is you're waiting for. I mean, there are times when the darkness grows so bleak that we feel blinded. But hold on to what you believe back when you could still see the light. I mean, that's, that's Jeremiah. Right, God, I don't, I don't see your love. I don't feel your mercies. It's pretty hard to believe right now that you can be trusted just too dark. But I remember what I cling to in the light. And I cling to it still. Never stop waiting. Sin is that bad, but God is that good. And I think that's what Jeremiah would say. And still don't believe it, that it's really that bad or that good. I mean, to me, the only thing I have to look at is the cross. Because the cross screams this same message out loud and clear. I mean, how bad is sin? My sin is so bad that if God wanted to rescue me, if he wanted a relationship with me, my heart is so dark that he himself had to come to this earth, had to become a human, had to, had to suffer on a cross, bearing the full weight of God's wrath towards sin and end up defeating death altogether just so that he could rescue me. 
That's how messed up I am. But how good is he? He did it. Gladly. Willingly for our sake, he suffered what we deserved so that we will never experience, if we trust in Jesus, we will never experience the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced. Jesus was abandoned by God on the cross so that you and I, as his followers, will never be abandoned by him. He experienced the the depth of loneliness and grief and pain to save us from it. He took on our condemnation, all the judgment that we deserve, so that if there's anything else we know in the midst of of our pain or suffering, it's that whatever we're experiencing, it's not God's judgment. Not if you follow Jesus. Because it says in Romans that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No matter what it is, it's not God's judgment in your life. No matter how much you weep over the brokenness of our world or in your heart, we know with confidence that we have a God who knows, who's been there, who's been here, and he cares about this broken world and this broken life and this broken heart more than any of us possibly could. Yes, our sin is that bad, but praise God, our Savior is that good. Let's pray. God, help us to be a people who trust you, who hold on to your promises. That even when the darkness closes in around us, even when we feel just simply desperate for a reason to sing, that even then, we trust you. God, I pray that you would grip us with the, the depth of our own sins, the guilt and the shame that we would heed your warnings. And yet at the same time, God, that we would celebrate this great Redeemer who saves us from our sins, who takes everything that we deserve. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. We ask that you would be glorified. Amen.